Well, as I said, we look together to the truth of God's Word that is summarized for us in Lord's Day 22. You can find that in the back of your Psalter hymnal on page 29. But before we look to that confession, I'd like to read with you from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read the, uh, the last half of that chapter beginning at verse 35 and continuing on to the end. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 35. The apostle has been writing about the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus himself arose from the dead and that that foreshadowed our own resurrection from the dead in the end. And he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust... So also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The, death of, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 22, bringing us to the very end of our confession in the Apostles' Creed, asks us concerning the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, which we confess in the Creed. And it asks, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? 
And in answer, God's people confess, not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but even my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this section of our catechism, well, I think it sounds itself more loudly, rings more vibrantly the older we get. Watch a young boy ride a bike or climb a tree. He's invincible in his own eyes. It's hard to appreciate words and concepts like resurrection and eternity and future when the excitement of right now fills every moment of every day. Or listen to young girls create make-believe worlds and talk about their little girl dreams. Heartache might now and then interfere with their world for a moment or two. But it's quickly buried beneath the irrepressible joy they have in living. The future for them is all weddings and adventures and happy endings. Death, resurrection, eternity. These are concepts often beyond the field of a child's vision. But the older we get, we begin to see what those eyes of youth miss as we experience ourselves and in our loved ones the pain of injury and disease, as we feel the torment of sorrow and isolation and loss, as we see our own weakness in the face of temptation and the devastation that surrounds us caused by sin. Between the heartache of brokenness and the ugliness of sin, we see that this world, it's not what it was meant to be, not yet. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of pain. Not that we should be a gloomy people, but our joy in the Lord often is tempered by our understanding and our perception of the realities of sin and of fallenness. We see that the joy and the triumph that we have in Christ, as glorious as it is, it's just a foretaste of that which is to come. And it's a foretaste that often is dulled by the hurt of this life. But Christ, as I said, doesn't call us to be a gloomy people. Instead, he calls us to rejoice at that which we experience now, small though it is, and to take that foretaste and meditate on how glorious, how wonderful, how amazing will be that time which is coming, and to meditate on that hope of promise fulfilled in Christ. And that's what Lord's Day 22 does for us. It, it reminds us as we come to the end of our examination of our confession in the creed, it calls us to look forward to that joy that we have 
in what Christ has done. And the certainty that that all will come to to pass, it will all be fully applied and our eyes will see it. And so our theme this evening is simply this, that Christ's redeeming work comforts us, indeed causes us to rejoice with the hope of perfection. Christ's redeeming work comforts us with the hope of perfection. And we're going to see that that hope of perfection deals both with our being, who and what we are, and also with our blessing, what we experience before God. So we begin by considering the hope of perfection of being, looking forward to that time when we fully bear the image of Christ. Because you see, we do bear His image now. Kids, you know that, right? We were meant to bear the image of God. Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God. And so we bear his image as Christians. But that image in us is marred. It's it's not quite as it should be. It's damaged. It's disfigured. It's kind of like, think about what happens to chalk drawings on the sidewalk. We had some chalk drawings that one of my kids made on the sidewalk for a a young person that we had over that we were babysitting a while back and they had made these neat little pictures and they lasted on the sidewalk for so long but then it started to rain and what happens to those chalk drawings when it begins to rain well pretty soon the the sharpness the clarity of the image starts to fade doesn't it you can still see the colors the general shapes but But they start to bleed, the colors run together, the shapes become indistinct to the point that pretty soon it's hard to tell what the picture was. Well, that's what's happened to the image of God in us. It's been marred, its shape becoming indistinct and blurry. And the biggest cause of that marring, of that brokenness of His image is sin. God is holy, He's utterly and completely without fault, without defect. There's no stain of sin or wrongdoing in him. But because of our sin, we have become unholy. If you picture our souls as white robes, well, imagine that white robe after you've gone out and worked in the garden for a while or maybe changed the oil in your car. It's spattered and defiled. Sin makes permanent marks that leave us unacceptable in God's sight and that that really ruin the holiness that we were made to bear. Plus, sin is an act of rebellion. One of the reasons Jesus was the perfect image bearer of God is that he perfectly submitted to the will and command of the Lord. Whatever God said to do, he did. Whatever God said not to do, he didn't do. And throughout his life, he came came saying, I have come to do the will of my Father. But in sin... We have a tendency to be rebellious. We want to follow our will or the will of the world rather than the will of God. And along with sin, we're marred by weakness. Mankind was created with the strength to follow God wholeheartedly. But with Adam's fall into sin, we become weak. We no longer find it easy to turn away from sin and to take up what is righteous. We hear his positive commands to love and serve and worship him. But we find it hard, sometimes impossibly hard. 
And we see that we have these, these budding gifts within us, talents. And some of them we develop wholeheartedly, but others we, we allow to sort of wither on the vine. We have some raspberries at home. And I'd love to go out and pick some of those before breakfast and put some fresh raspberries on my cereal. But, you know, for a while we neglected them. They weren't producing raspberries that much, so we weren't watching for them. And then when we went out to look, there were all these raspberries that had withered on the vine. And they were no longer good. That's what happens so often to the, the fledgling gifts God has given us. We, in our weakness, don't develop them and they wither. We don't use them and so they become useless. In fact, our fallenness reveals itself even in physical weakness. Our bodies are racked with illness and disease that originated after Adam's fall. We become injured and scars disfigure us. So in every way, physically and spiritually, positively and negatively, the image of God in us has become marred. But for those who belong to God through Christ, it shall not always be so. Already now, He's given us the first fruits of deliverance. God has given us the desire, the will to bear His image. For example, we've been given the Holy Spirit so that sin's disfigurement might be lessened. We're, we're able to begin using, developing those gifts. We're able to begin turning away from the sins that once held us captive. Yes, we're still weak. Yes, we still struggle with sin. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to overcome those sins. However, it's always an imperfect overcoming in this life, isn't it? But at death, at death we will be freed from sin once, for, once and for all. Now that sounds strange. That death will free us from sin. But in death the soul of a Christian is separated from his body with all of its weakness, with all of its defilement. At death we cease to sin. We cease to desire sin. And we enter into the fullness of God's blessed presence. That's for Christians. And that's something to long for, isn't it? Think of how amazing it will be. Young people, this isn't just for the old folks. Think about how many times you have known what you ought to do, but then you found yourself doing what you know you shouldn't do because you just weren't strong enough to do what was right. You just went along with the crowd because you couldn't quite stand up against those cool ones, right? Or against that desire within yourself. But at that time, we will be strong enough. There will be no temptation that can overtake us. But we will desire wholeheartedly and completely everything that God desires. And we will long to do what delights Him. The weakness of the body will be behind us. No longer will we be attacked by sickness and disease. The brokenness and the limitations of the flesh will be gone. Paul expresses his longing for that time in 2 Corinthians 5. He talks about living in the flesh, living in this life as dwelling in a tent. Now a tent, think about this, a tent is for someone who is on a journey, right? When Israel was leaving Egypt and coming toward the promised land, they lived in tents. They lived in manufactured dwellings out in the wilderness. And that showed that they weren't home. When they finally got to Canaan, then they lived in houses. Then they lived in cities. 
But when they were in the wilderness, when they were always on the move, then they dwelt in tents, and that's us in the flesh. And he says, we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That's what we long for, that we can have that which is truer and stronger and better. We're like Israel in the wilderness, living in these tents where the rain drips through and where we're laying on the hard ground and where we we might wake up one morning in a totally different place from the, the place we woke up the morning before. Always unsettled, never truly at home. We long for that place of permanency, that place of solidity. But, he says, the time is coming. In this tent, Verse 4, he says, in this tent we groan being burdened. But very soon that groan will end. That burden will be taken off. We will be given something permanent, something solid, something perfect. But even when we enter into heaven, we're only halfway there. Because then we've left sin behind. We've left behind the brokenness of the flesh. But we weren't made to be without the flesh. We were made to bear body and soul together in perfect obedience and submission to the Lord. And so we will continue to wait until Christ comes back and judges all mankind, all who have ever lived. Casting out those who have persisted in their rebellion against Him, but taking to Himself all of those who have trusted in Him. And on that day, our whole being, body and soul, shall be reunited as one and will be utterly and completely perfected. As guests at the wedding feast of the Lamb, we shall no longer be naked, but we will be clothed. Our souls made pure and unstained. Our bodies perfected and empowered to do the will of God with absolute righteousness. On that day, we will be whole without sin and without desire for sin. You know, when that day comes, we won't look terribly different than we look today. Our basic form then will be as it now is. But we will be perfected. We will be glorified in every way. We know that from from Jesus, by the way. When he showed up on the road to Emmaus beside the two disciples, and then later on when he showed up in the upper room, They didn't gasp and say, what kind of creature is this? No, they saw a man like them. A man who still bore the scars of what he had done in the flesh, but who had been healed, perfected, made whole. And so shall we be in that day. But no longer will we have weakness. No longer will sickness and injury and disease bring us low. Our souls will not sin, nor will we desire to sin, but we will long to serve and love God with all our heart and soul, mind and strength, and we will delight to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we saw in our scripture reading this evening, isn't it? On that day of perfecting, we will be given a splendor that is heavenly, far surpassing the weak splendor of this world. Our joy will be complete, not just this light and fleeting joy that we have in this world. Though we now live in weakness on that day, at the day of His coming, we will gain new life in perfect strength. 
He says in verses 42 and 43, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. In fact, that's the testimony of Christian burial. Often I get asked the question, increasingly often, what do you think of cremation? It's cheaper, but it lacks one crucial thing, and that's the testimony of our Christian hope. That even as the farmer sows a seed, not in hope that another seed will come up, but in hope of the glory of the new plant that brings forth not one or two or ten seeds, but dozens and even hundreds of seeds. So we plant the body in its brokenness, in its fallenness. But we look forward to the harvest on the day of resurrection when that body is brought forth in utter perfection and glory, filled with the holiness of Christ and bearing the image of God in absolute perfection. Folks, when that happens, that will be the full revealing of what Jesus came to do. All of his suffering and humiliation ending with his death on the cross, that earned our forgiveness. His resurrection, triumphing over death, that earned victory over Satan. And all of it from start to finish, from his conception to his ascension, earned him the right to reclaim the creation, to reclaim it from the effects of sin and to reclaim it for the glory of God. Jesus has paid the full price. Now we don't see all of it yet. Satan still prowls about seeking whom he may devour. Sin still mars the heart and life of man. Creation itself groans as it awaits the day of renewal. And we see the evidence on every side. Children disobey their parents. Nations make war against nations. Husbands and wives fight rather than expressing their unity. All of us find obedience to God hard. Jesus has earned our restoration from sin and its effects, but we don't yet see all of that. But on that day of judgment, we will. We'll see this. We'll see the full overcoming of all the brokenness and the ugliness of this world's rebellion. And we'll see the fullness of the victory that Christ has won. And what a comfort it is, brothers and sisters, to know that now. A while back, I I came down with an illness that really, you know, once in a while I get a cold and it's not so bad, but... Every so often, you really get nailed. And one night in particular, I was exhausted. I so longed to sleep, but my head was pounding so hard, and every time I laid down, it pounded even harder. My muscles ached. I was either sweating or freezing. About the only thing I could do in the middle of the night was to pace around the living room in the early morning hours. So to distract myself from the pain and the tiredness, I opened up a Psalter. And what a blessing to sing Psalms like Psalm 38, crying out in grief at the brokenness of the world, but with the sure and certain hope that something better is coming, that one day very soon, in the light of eternity, it will be very soon that all of it will be behind us. And all we will know is the perfection of Christ's work manifested within us and all around us. And brothers and sisters, we all can enjoy that comfort right now. Even though sin sometimes drags us down, even though strife 
seeks to tear us apart. Even though nation battles nation and sickness strikes and disease destroys, nonetheless, God's promises are true and the day of his restoration is coming and very soon we will know absolute perfection of being, our being and the being of the creation around us being utterly perfected by Christ. And that's not the extent of it either. Because Lord's Day 22 shows us also the hope of perfection of blessing which shall be ours when we know fully the presence of our God. And that's the other point that we see here. Listen to, ver- to uh, answer 58. Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life, I will have perfect blessedness such, that, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has ever imagined a blessedness with which to praise God eternally. Notice what that confession presupposes, my friends, that now we experience joy. As I said before, the older we get, the more we recognize the the effects of sin and brokenness on our world. We see our own sin and depravity. We see how unavoidable is sorrow in this world. But we are not called to be a gloomy people. The Psalms are filled with a recognition of this duality of our existence. On the one hand, seeing the enemies around us and the enemy within, our sin. But at the same time, rejoicing in the knowledge of God and rejoicing in our relationship with the Lord. And most of all, rejoicing at the hope of what He is doing and has promised to do. Folks, that's the song that we must sing, a song of of pleading for deliverance from God, but also a song of joy, confessing what he has accomplished in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're an unrealistic people. We acknowledge the reality of loneliness, mental illness, disease, broken relationships. Our faith doesn't make us exempt from such woes, Nor should such sorrows cause us to question our faith. As we mourn the loss of a loved one at death, we miss them. It causes our hearts to ache, but we also acknowledge that Christ has overcome death. And so this separation is not final if they were Christians. We weep at sin and its consequences But we don't give up hope that we can become better servants of the Lord. In fact, we look forward to that time when we will be perfect servants of the Lord. We suffer, we mourn, we weep. But we also recognize that we can abound in the work of the Lord because our labor, even though it's imperfect, even though it falls short of what it could be, It is not in vain in the Lord. He will still delight in that which we do in our imperfection. We can rejoice, brothers and sisters, even in the midst of this world's brokenness. Because we know how the story ends. You know, I've always loved to read. Always loved to read. A while back, a number of years ago, I read an epic story. It was was neat in that it was a, a true story of good and evil. The premise was that a a plague of sorts had wiped out the vast majority of mankind. And all that was left was a smattering of individuals across the continent. And as the story developed, these individuals began to coalesce into two groups. One, a very obviously good group 
that was seeking to rebuild civilization and reestablish community, while the others were bent on evil, seeking only pleasure for the moment, seeking community only insofar as it benefited their own situation. And the story was so well written that there was this tension throughout. You didn't know who was going to win. You hoped that good would triumph. But you, you wondered if maybe, maybe the evil faction would complete what the plague had begun. Well, in a novel, that uncertainty, that anxiety about how it will turn out is part of the excitement. I later reread the book, and while it was enjoyable the second time, it wasn't nearly as enjoyable because you knew how it was going to turn out. But in real life, that not knowing what's coming would be a nightmare. Imagine not being sure who's going to win, whether Satan might come out on top after all. Imagine uncertainty about what eternity itself might hold. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you, that's what the false religions experience. In Islam, they're pretty sure that Allah is going to be triumphant in the end, but they're never quite certain whether they're going to be with him whether they've done enough, whether they've truly satisfied. Among the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they trust that Jesus will be triumphant, but they're never quite sure whether they've done enough to be one of His. And you get into the Eastern religions, and, and you're never quite sure what's going to happen and what you're going to come back as in the future. But by God's grace, brothers and sisters, our life is not like a novel. We need not guess at what the future holds. We can be absolutely certain both who wins and where we will be when that triumph is revealed. Yes, sometimes in this life we weep and we mourn and we experience sorrow. But even in the midst of our deepest darkness, we can have joy in our hearts because we know that this is all temporary and that the time comes very soon. And we'll see the fullness of what Christ has done. Right now, we dwell in bodies that are weak and in societies that are perishable. But the Lord teaches us. This corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. There will be an end to our weakness. There will be a close to our mortality. And on that day of Christ's return, we will sing, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And we will confess with the saints of every age, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Already that victory is complete. And on that day of Christ's return, we will see it in all of its fullness and glory. When that day comes, brothers and sisters, the joy that we feel now will explode. Because we will see the end of death, the end of brokenness, the end of strife. We will see the end of Satan. The wicked rulers of the earth, Revelation tells us, will weep at the destruction of all that for which they have worked. Those who now trade in the luxuries of this fallen world, they will mourn because they know that they will have to pay the price for all that they have enjoyed. But we who belong to Christ, we will rejoice. 
Revelation 19 says, On that day we will shout with the multitude in heaven, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are His judgments. And we shall call out, our voices one with the saints of every age, Alleluia! For the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice to give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And brothers and sisters, we shall be his wife. Clothed with the deeds that he has caused us to work during our time in the flesh. Remember what we heard in 1 Corinthians 15. What we have done in the flesh will not be wasted. But he will have perfected it and he will clothe us with those works that demonstrate that we are his. And from that point on, we will do works that are absolutely perfect and all of which will honor God. We will celebrate on that day a joy that today we can barely begin to comprehend. But we can begin. We can taste the first fruits of that glory even now. We experience it in the joy of of reading his promises and recognizing that those are for us. We can taste of that day when in prayer we feel the burden falling off our backs knowing that God is hearing us and that he will answer those prayers. We savor that day's excellency as we sing psalms to God recognizing the deliverance he will bring. As we contemplate the privilege of calling God our Father. As we ponder the blessing of no longer struggling with our sin. We're being hampered by the brokenness of the flesh. Even in the midst of this world's pain, we taste already the joy that is to come. And brothers and sisters, we must savor that joy. The Lord has not called us, hear this well, the Lord has not called us to bury ourselves in this world's sorrow. He chose you. He called you to be delivered from this world's woes. He freed you from the helplessness of sin so that even now you can begin, begin having triumph over sin. He has resurrected you to a new hope. The knowledge that one day you won't struggle and one day there will be no one who is angry at you nor anyone with whom you are angry. He has chosen you to know the mercy of God, the forgiveness of all your sins, the confidence that you will have life eternal in the presence of God. And you are called to ponder that and to celebrate that and to sing praise to Him for that and to tell others, especially your children and your grandchildren, what an amazing gift He has given to us. And yes, this world is still hard. And yes, sometimes we feel distant from God, but that day is coming to an end. So spend time meditating on what is to come. Spend time communing with God in prayer and sing. Sing, sing, sing. I know some of us think we don't have a voice that could carry a tune if we tried, but you know what? God gave you your voice. And he loves to hear every one of us singing praise to him, acknowledging his goodness and his grace. So sing out his praise, celebrate his goodness, both among the congregation and in the privacy of your own home. And look forward to that day when all of our brokenness is behind us. And when we come forth bearing the fullness of the work of Christ, 
Jesus has completed his work. And therefore, we have the absolute comfort that perfection is ours in a day soon to dawn. A perfection of being as we fully bear the image of Christ, a perfection of blessing as we fully know the presence of Christ. Until that day dawns, let us meditate on the hope he's given us and be confident that he who has promised will bring to pass all that he holds before us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, your promises are very great beyond what we can even fathom in this life. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to take up those promises as our own, to hold them firmly, delighting in you who have given those promises. And we pray that you would give us joy, even in the midst of this world's sorrow, even in the midst of our brokenness, as we look forward to that time of perfect blessedness. Give us a foretaste that we might celebrate that joy even now. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.